We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. What's holding you back? What's stopping you from reaching your goals or perhaps even knowing what they are? Could your desire to please, concern about others, and a fear of being selfish be stopping you from breaking free and getting in touch with your own desires or reaching your full potential? My witness today believes we all have a powerful force inside us that knows what is right for us. But women in particular lose their sense of self and need to reconnect with their inner fire. My witness is Jungian analyst Lisa Marciano, one of the hosts of the popular podcast This Jungian Life and the author of Motherhood, which we discussed on a previous episode of The Meaningful Life, and a new book called The Vital Spark. Reclaim Your Outlaw Energies and Find Your Feminine Power, which I've already actually recommended just this very day to a client of mine. And uh, I've been using some of the material with another, and I think I'll be recommending it to other people. So, Lisa, when did you fully realise, rather than sort of have an intellectual concept, that you had a vital spark, something inside that could not be denied? Well, I mean, I think we all have some experience of that, don't we? Knowing that there's something in us that wants to come out. And I think that, again, my thesis in the book is that this is, you know, a universal experience that is experienced differently in general from women to men. You know, I do believe that there are differences in a woman's psychological development from a man's psychological development writ large you know, on a sort of population level. And and I suspect that some of these differences have to do with, you know, nurture and the culture and society. And I suspect that some of them are innate, actually. And there is some evidence for that, even though it's not a particularly popular thing to say. But I remember being very frustrated as a young woman. I worked at one job in my 20s where uh, it was a job overseas. So we had local staff and we had expat staff. And I remember one day someone saying to me, oh yes, everyone thinks you're the best expat staff when you're in a good mood <laughs> or something Ooh. like that. And I, I knew exactly what they were talking about when they said this because, you know, my normal state is pretty cheerful and pleasant, but boy, I can get really, really angry and irritable. And especially then, I mean, I, I hope I'm better now. This was many decades ago. But that that rage, that frustration and anger would flare up and I could, you know, shoot off and say something cutting or or just kind of have a big storm around me. You know, people just didn't want to come near me because it's like, oh, she's in a bad mood. And and that was a very common experience for me. And I got feedback like that a lot from people. And I 
I always knew what they were talking about. So, you know, looking back, I think that my anger that I couldn't quite master was an expression of something in me that needed to come out, wanted to come out. I couldn't find a constructive way to get it out. Because I think that when I talk to clients, both male and female, about this, there is that fear of, you know, their energy, their outlaw energy, their internal fire, because sometimes it comes out uncontrolled and, you know, not only does it get them into trouble, but it's, you know, not very nice. Yeah, And the fear is, unless we get that under control, we're going to hurt other people and ourselves. And that actually is a problem, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there's no easy answer to this because you can hurt people when you just let loose. Uh, You can hurt people when you assert your needs. Sometimes pursuing what you need to pursue means that you will disappoint or hurt someone. So there's not some easy, magical way through this. In some sense, it's a true dilemma. But what I'm calling for is that we make the dilemma conscious so that we're not acting compulsively off an old script that says that we must put other people first, but that we can become choiceful about when we, for example, set our own needs aside to care for someone else, which is a deeply meaningful thing to do. And when we decide that we're going to you know, say the hurtful truth that we know that we need to speak, that it can be a conscious process. So I think there's a difference between tending the fire so it can keep us warm and keep us safe and allowing it to sort of burn wild and burn the whole forest down. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the difference that we're talking about. Am I getting that right? Yes. And and again, I think maybe there are two words that come to mind. One is kind of consciousness or choicefulness, that we're in choice. The other one is responsibility. You know, and those two things go together. When we're conscious about something, we are then enabled to take responsibility for it. So sometimes people, and I'm going to stick with women here, although I'm sure this can happen to men too, but women can become so filled with resentment, say, at their partner. And and I understand I understand that. I understand resentfulness. It's not that I don't have compassion for it, but you have to take responsibility for it. Otherwise, it can burn down your relationship. So, being a Jungian analyst, you always reach for a myth or a legend to help us understand this, which I find incredibly helpful. And the, the central myth in this whole book is the idea of Lilith. Now, introduce us to Lilith and why is she so important? Well, in medieval Jewish texts, Lilith was Adam's first wife. <laughs> And she was made of the same clay, and Adam wanted to have sex with her, with her underneath him. And she said, no, you know, the two of us are equal, and we're both from the same earth, and, you know, why should I lie underneath you? But Adam wasn't having it, and so Lilith fled. She went away, and God sent three angels after her, but she, you know, couldn't be mollified. And so God made a new wife for Adam, this time from his rib, and then it was very clear that she would be subordinate to him. So Lilith became a kind of demonic figure. She was said to wait at the bedside of laboring women so that she could grab the child and eat it. 
She was often a seductress, so she could tempt men away and lure them into evil. There are these wonderful artifacts from the ancient world that show these kind of prayers against Lilith to protect the household against her. So she was really quite demonic. But Marie-Louise von Franz says of her that she is an image of an unbridled life urge which refuses to be assimilated. So I, I think we all have a little bit of Lilith in us, even if we've also cultivated our Eve. And that is the fiery stuff that propels us forward in our individuation journey. You know, it's these fiery qualities that are kind of dangerous socially and interpersonally. They don't make us nice and compliant, but they do help us get and stay connected to ourselves. Now, the words that you use over and over again, and it's the word that I kept on reaching for as I was reading it, is this is really transgressive. So why is it important to transgress the social norms? Well, I think that the world would have us be, you know, more like Eve all of the time. So that we're nurturing, we're tending to others, we're setting aside our own needs to be caregivers, to be attuned to the feelings of other people. And I don't I don't want to denigrate those qualities. I mean, for most people, men and women, I think, if you said, you know, what's the most meaningful thing that you've done in your life, most people would probably immediately go to their relationships, their marriage, their friendships, their parents, their children. Caregiving and being connected to one another are inherently deeply meaningful. So it's not that these things are bad, but it's very convenient for other people if we're always in that mode. And from a kind of societal perspective, it's very important that women be nurturing and caregiving because if we weren't, there'd be no more people, right? It's not just birthing the baby. It's not conceiving or gestating or birthing or nursing. It's the whole endeavor of nurture that you know takes a couple of decades. And it's primarily falls to women or largely falls to women, or there's a way that women do it that men don't quite do it that way. I mean, I think both men and women are important in nurturing children, and they each bring separate important things. But that nurturing aspect is something that is, I think, particularly a characteristic of women. And so if we're not going to be nurturing, if we're going to cultivate some of these other qualities, well, that is a direct affront to this very important thing that women do in the culture, which is to nurture, which is part of the reason why I think that Lilith is associated with, you know, killing babies. It's like, what if women embraced their other side? But if you can't find a place to do that, if you can't find a way to connect with these other qualities, you spend your whole life in service to others, and you never consciously know what matters to you. And I think what usually happens in those cases is that it comes out sideways. Comes out as resentment. Resentment, passive-aggressive behavior, you know, kind of startling aggression at other people. Maybe like, <laughs> maybe like the way I was in my 20s when my coworkers were like, oh, watch out. So what you're saying is that we need to be in contact with our anger, 
are shrewdness. I thought that was a very interesting word, and forcefulness. Mm-hmm. And what's sort of extraordinary is when you think of children's stories, there tends to be some very resourceful young ladies. You know, we've got mm-hmm. Matilda yes. and uh, one of my childhood favourites, Pippi Longstocking. Yes. But then suddenly the older heroines are sort of, I'm, I'm perhaps being a bit of exaggeration to say they're a bit wet, but you know, compared with Pippi Longstocking and Matilda, they are. Yes, absolutely. So what happens when we I keep on saying we, when women reach puberty. Well, you know, there's been whole books written about that. One of them is Reviving Ophelia by Mary Pfeiffer, in which she explored exactly that. And she raises the same issue that you raise about what the heroines look like at the cusp of adolescence versus what they look like on the other end. And I don't know that I exactly know what it is. I think some of it is cultural. But I think some of it is that very mysterious process of growing into adulthood and beginning to assume the role of caregiver, even even if we don't, even if that's not at all in consciousness, right? That is what puberty is. I mean, puberty is your body changing so that you can become a parent. And that's true for men and women. You know, it's like we we forget that we're these kind of biological beings that actually, from the standpoint of evolution, you know, what matters is that we have grandchildren, you know, and we're driven by that in ways that, you know, maybe we don't want to think about sometimes. But adolescence, puberty, you know, brings with it, you know, these surges of hormones that presumably reprogram us in some way and make us focus on things like, are we attractive? Can we attune to other people's needs? And of course, there are huge cultural pieces here. I mean, I I don't feel super comfortable with the word patriarchy. I think that's a very complicated term, so I, I avoided it in the book. But there's no doubt that there are all kinds of societal messaging towards girls, towards adolescent girls. And especially now, I think, you know, it's always been true, or at least as far back as I can think. But it's a whole different level with social media that you're meant to be attractive. You're meant to be, you know, hyper feminine. You're meant to be appealing sexually. You're meant to not be challenging and you're meant to kind of meet other people's needs. And one of the things that I I spoke about in the book, a story I told is while I was working on this book, I went out to dinner with my family and we're sitting in this restaurant and There were two little girls at different tables near us wearing a shirt that had some variation of be kind on it. And listen, I'm I'm an advocate for kindness. I think it's an incredible virtue. But to me, it seems like the cultural discourse around kindness, we're actually talking about something very false and more something like be nice, which I, I think we all know that nice being nice is being fake. And I think kindness has kind of moved over into that spot, but it's it's really taken on the same meaning, like bury your authentic reaction and be nice and play along and don't make other people uncomfortable. And this is real. You know, I I think some number of years ago, I I was in this naive belief that, you know, sexism had sort of been conquered and it wasn't, I didn't think that it directly affected my life, but I would, I would say that I was really wrong in that. And I, I think there are very different behavioral standards for men than for women, and that that starts early 
with this kind of messaging that girls should be kind. And uh, there was a great book that came out last year called Hags by um, Victoria Smith. And um, she talks about this, you know, that women are not supposed to be, you know, hag-like, but that's an important aspect of who we are. We all have a Lilith in us, but it's been banished. So I think we should go deep into a story because I think this story, which is sort of about on being on the cusp of moving from being a child to a woman, is really illustrative of a lot of the points that uh, you make in the book. So first of all, why don't you tell us about the Fitcher's bird and then we can understand what it's got to tell us. Yeah, well, it's just an incredible story that is packed with wisdom. And it's kind of the story that the book hangs on, although I don't, I don't make that explicit, but it's really, you know, that, that was my thinking. So in the story, it is the Grimm's version of Bluebeard, and many people know the Bluebeard story better, but Fitcher's Bird is, I think, by far and away the better story. So what happens is, say, there's a sorcerer who disguises himself as a beggar and goes house to house. And so he knocks on the door of this house where there are three young women living, And he says, oh, I'm a poor beggar. And so one of the girls, one of the daughters, one of the sisters gives him a piece of bread. And as soon as she gives him the piece of bread, he has power over her and he can cause her to jump into his basket. So he carries her back to his house and it's this fine mansion. And she sort of has has everything that she needs and she lives with him there for a while. And then he says, "Um, I've got to go away I'm going to give you the keys to every room in the house. You can go to any room you want, just not this little room here. Don't go into that room. <laughs> and he also gives her an egg. And he says, I want you to keep it with you always. You know, don't ever set it aside. Keep it, keep it safe. So, of course, you know, as this happens, you have to go into the room that you're not supposed to yep. go into. That's a law in fairy tales. <laughs> and uh, so just like in a horror movie, it's like, no, why are you going to the dark basement in the middle of the night? Like. No one, who does that? But there she is. She goes, she unlocks the door. She goes into the room and she finds in it a vat filled with the cut up body parts of all these women. And she's so startled that she drops the egg in the vat and she fetches it out, but she tries to wipe off the blood and she can't. So the sorcerer comes home and he immediately asks to see the egg. And of course, he discerns. From that, that she disobeyed him and went into the bloody chamber. And he says, now you will go in the bloody chamber yourself. And so he chops her up and puts her in the bloody chamber. So then he goes back to the same house. Same thing happens. He takes the second daughter home, the second sister. The same thing happens. So then he goes back again. And same thing happens. And he brings the third sister to his, his house. And same thing happens. But she's a little more canny. And she sets the egg aside before she goes in that room. She finds her sisters all cut up. And what she does is she puts them all back together and they come back to life because this is a wonderful thing that happens in fairy tales. So then she has this plan about how she's going to smuggle them out to safety. So he comes home and he asks to see the egg and she presents the egg and it. she didn't bring the egg in with her. So there's no blood on it. So it's like, oh, this is fantastic. Now you can be my wife. She's like, great, great, let's get ready for the wedding. But first of all, I need you to carry back to my parents' home this basket full of gold. And into the bottom of the basket, she has one of her sisters, and she's filled the top of it with gold. And she says to him, 
Now, don't take your time. You, you know, don't stop and rest. You need to go straight to my parents' house and I'm going to be watching and I'll see you if you stop. So he's carrying the basket back to her parents' house and it's so heavy. And he sets it down at one point and the sister in the basket says, what are you doing? I see you stopping. Hurry up. And he's like, wow, you know, she's got magical abilities. She can see me from really far away. So he picks it up and he he makes it back home and she repeats this with the second sister. The same thing happens. And then while he's gone with the second sister, she puts a skull in the window and dresses it up so it looks like a person. And then she gets undressed. She rubs her whole body in honey, cuts open a feather bed, rolls around in the feathers so that she's just this strange creature all covered in feathers. And then she heads out on her way home and various people stop her and say, you know, Fitcher's bird, what are you doing here? And there's this kind of rhyme in the story. But basically she, she says, yeah, I'm I'm Fitcher's bird and I'm out for a walk and his bride is readying the house for the wedding. And the bride is like the skull in the window who's all dressed up. And so the sorcerer goes home and at that point is locked in the house with the other wedding guests and burned to death by these brothers who sort of make this magical appearance at the, right at the end. But so you, the, many of the similar themes from Bluebeard with a significant difference that it is the third sister herself who rescues her sisters and herself. So what are the qualities that we're seeing in this story that we need to make the successful transition from mm-hmm. being a girl to being a woman? So the eight qualities that I talk about in the book are disagreeableness, shrewdness, a trickster quality, desire, sexuality, rage, authority, and ruthlessness. And I think if we look, we can see that she touches into all of those. So she doesn't mind being disagreeable. You know, she's not trying to please the sorcerer at any point. She is shrewd. You know, the first two sisters are kind of the phrase I like to use is they're kind of trapped in an innocence complex. Like you you just assume that this man has your best interest at heart. You know, you don't consider, gee, maybe I should put the egg aside before I go in that room. Maybe I should take some precautions. Going in the room itself is actually psychologically valuable because it means becoming conscious of something that we've, some terrible secret that we've not wanted to know. But at some point you have to open the door and know that terrible secret but it helps to be shrewd when you do it, to not not just make assumptions that the world's going to look out for you. No, you got to look out for yourself. Obviously, she's a real trickster. She tricks him into carrying her sisters home. She tricks him into thinking that she has magical powers. And with being a trickster, mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is something that I had never really thought about, but I thought was really interesting in your book is to be a trickster, you have to have two things. You have to have faith in the world and faith in yourself. Mm-hmm. So tell us why we need faith in ourselves and faith in the world. Well, in some sense, I think, you know, being a trickster, you you have to have faith in the world in the sense that you sort of have to believe that there is a way, and it may not be the obvious way, but there is a way you can find. But you also can't be too innocent, right? You have to look for the trick. But also you need to have faith in yourself because if you don't have that confidence that you can find another way to do things, find the way that's not obvious, that you can come up with the answer. You know, there's something about trickster that says, 
I'm the ultimate authority on the situation. You know, I don't need to follow the rules. I don't even need to necessarily believe what someone else is telling me. I can evaluate the situation for myself. I can come up with my own best understanding of it. And I can have this kind of radical belief in my perceptions and my abilities that will allow me to craft my own answer. So back to transgressive, trickster energy is always transgressive. And it inherently means breaking the rules. And you need authority because, you Mm -hmm. know, she's actually telling the magician that he can't stop. You know, it takes a certain authority to pull off a trick, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does take authority to pull off a trick. Absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing is the story totally flips, right? Because then she's in charge of, with, of him. She's ordering him around. And so she does really claim authority. That's another one. In terms where's of sexual, Yeah, I was going to say, where's the sexuality? Because it doesn't seem a very sexy story to me. Well, I'm- the place where I find that is this kind of creating this sort of persona of the skull that looks beautiful and appealing that she puts up in the window, but she doesn't feel like she has to be associated with that. She can make herself look ridiculous by rolling around in the feathers. She doesn't need to be sexually appealing to anyone. So, One of the things that I talk about in the chapter on sexuality, you know, is about mutual delight, but also about kind of claiming your your relationship with your own sexuality, that it doesn't have to be there for someone else's pleasure, that you could just enjoy those feelings yourself, you know, perhaps in partnership or perhaps, you know, alone. But in any case, a real sort of claiming of, I don't need to look beautiful for someone else. I don't need to look sexy for someone else. I can I can do so for myself if I want to, but I could also roll around in honey and feathers. So this this sort of false I'm going to be the beautiful bride, that's the skull in the window so it's associated with death. Now, one of the other themes that comes through is losing innocence. Mm-hmm. And in our society we want to protect innocence in particular, women's innocence. And mm. I often have mature women who, in particular coming out after sort of an infidelity sort of kind of situation, they often say, you know, one of the things I've lost is my innocence. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I had this beautiful vision of the world, you know, that you were going to fall in love and you were going to live happily ever after. And losing my innocence is something that I really regret. And that's a great loss. But actually, what you're saying and what quite a lot of the fairy tales say is innocence is a problem. So tell me about that. Well, is it a problem? I mean, it has a place. But if we're talking about individuation, if we're talking about growing into the fullest version of ourselves, if we're talking about protecting ourselves, innocence gets in the way. You know, there's kind of two levels in the book, and in some chapters I talk about it more than others, but maybe it's helpful to kind of think about it the whole way through. There's what we need to do to protect ourselves, and being tricky can be very useful for that. You know, and, and I think a lot of women can relate to a time when they were maybe in physical danger when they employed a trick and they rescued themselves from that situation. But then there's the next thing that happens, which is How can we not just protect ourselves, but how can we self-actualize? 
So being overly innocent can get you in a lot of trouble. You know, you you wind up, oh, it's not going to be a problem. You know, I it's midnight, but I can walk through this neighborhood and, you know, not worry about it. It's like, no, that's actually very overly innocent, naive, and you're going to get yourself in trouble. Or interpersonally, like you're talking about, it's like, oh, well, he would never do anything to hurt me. Well, maybe, maybe not. But even beyond that, in terms of, you know, self-actualizing, in terms of becoming the fullest version of ourselves that we were meant to be, innocence necessarily implies that we're reliant in some ways on other people. And it requires that we not know something. It's like the first two sisters who were like, well, I've got this key to this room. Let me go take a peek, not thinking there might be something dangerous in that room. I'd better prepare for it, you know? So Robertson Davies says, one always learns one's mystery at the price of one's innocence. So if we're really going to get to know ourselves, if we're going to get to know our own mystery, we're going to lose our innocence and we can welcome that because along with that will come tremendous psychological growth. So we have to actually know that people die, that bad things happen we sort of have to actually know that, not just intellectually, but we need to fully experience it to become an adult. Well, and I would also say we lose our innocence about ourselves, right? Because not only do we learn that bad things happen, which I think everything you said is absolutely right, but we also need to know that we do bad things or that we at least Oops. have the potential to do bad things. Mm. So one of the bad things that one of our heroines does mm-hmm. is in the Frog King. And I actually used your version with a client. And uh-huh. they at the very beginning, they said, oh, I know this story. And then something, <laughs> and then something extraordinary happens. And they went, I don't know this version. So, I mean, we all know the Frog Princess, but just mm-hmm. zap us through to the important part. Right. Yeah. So the princess loses her ball. I mean, I love this story. It's so charming, and, but it's so deep. Oh my God, I love this story. So she loses her ball, her golden ball in the well. And a frog says, why are you crying, princess? And she says, I've lost my golden ball. And he says, well, I'll get it for you. But will you promise to bring me home and let me eat off your plate and sleep in your bed? She says, oh, yes, yes, yes. So he brings her golden ball. She's so happy. She goes skipping back off to the castle. And once she's there, you know, she's sitting at dinner and it's like squish, 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 ding dong. And uh, the frog is there. He's like, I want to be let in. And she's like, no. She closes the door. And her father says, who was that? She tells him. And he says, no, no, you got to keep your promise. So she brings him in. She's holding him by two fingers. And she, little slimy frog, she plunks him down on the table. And he's eating off her plate. And then he wants to sleep in her bed. And I'm going through really quickly. But she brings him to the bedroom. Her father's like, you've got to keep your promises. But that the thought of that slimy frog on her beautiful silk princess pillow, she gets so angry that she flings him against the wall, splat. And at the moment that she does so, he turns into a handsome prince. And in the version that everybody knows, she kisses him. I believe that the version where she kisses him, by the way, is the French version. And so one funny observation is that the French kiss the frog and the Germans throw the frog against the wall. So there may be some national character at work there as well, but I like the German version. So why should we fling the frog? Well, you know, the princess, she has a kind of inflated view of herself. 
She is kind of in her little princess persona where everything is perfect and she's perfect. And when she gets angry at the frog, that's when she's really authentic for the first time. Jim Hollis said something like, the opposite of good isn't bad. The opposite of good is authentic. Mm. So again, it goes back to this idea of being nice. And we're just going to be nice all the time. And we're not in our authenticity. And sometimes being authentic means doing something that is this sort of embodied expression of something we deeply feel that makes other people uncomfortable. But that is transformational. And there's something sort of rather strange about her making promises that she knows she's not going to keep. So tell us about that. Well, you know, I think that there is a sort of entitlement there. I think she's a, you know, my read is that it's a kind of picture of a a not very well-developed ego where we kind of are used to being treated well and we think that good things should just happen to us. So we don't really think about the cost of it. And of course, we can think about this in the interpersonal level, but even in the intrapsychic level, I mean, one of the one of the ways the story is very profound is her encounter at the well with the frog. It's a real image of an encounter with the deep parts of herself. So, you know, the well is the mysterious entree into the deep water that's found at the source. And the golden ball is an image of what Jung called the self. And the frog is that which can move between the realms, can go down to the bottom and bring something back up to consciousness. So she has encountered her own potential for depth, and she wants to skirt that and go back to being, you know, Jung called it the regressive restoration of the persona. We've had an intimation of something deeper, and it shakes our sense of who we are, so we just want to pretend it didn't happen. You know, and I I think in some sense, it's like, yes, I want this. I can intuit that I want that golden ball, but I don't want to have to pay the price. (laughs) And isn't, don't we all feel like that? That is just so true. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing I think is really interesting about this story is, in a sense, we have to say no to our father. Yeah. Which I, I think is so super wonderfully nuanced in this story because talk about a good king. You know, this father's a good king. He says, you have to keep your promise. And we we need that kind of good king in our culture. We also need that kind of good king in ourselves. It's like, okay, you know, we the shoulds. <laughs> we all have a lot of shoulds. And if you don't do your shoulds, then you can't be an effective person in the world. You can't do the right thing. You know, there's a duty. There's a duty. You can't, if you don't get up and go to work every day, then, you know, you can't pay the mortgage and your kids don't eat, you know, so so that's really important. But it also says there is an incredibly important moment where we have to say no to that in service to something deeper. So when have you flung the frog? <laughs> Let me think. Well, You know, I can think of countless examples of this in my own life, but certainly I've also heard about this from clients where someone approaches you on the street and asks, (laughs) I'm thinking of one particular time when someone approached me in an obviously aggressive, inappropriate manner, a man, and asked me something. And I knew that this was trouble. I knew that it was that I was a little bit in danger. And he asked me maybe where something was or something. And I answered him. 
I answered him and then he came on really strong and really aggressive me and right in my face. And I thought I'm about to get mugged. I'm about to get raped. I'm about to get something. And thank God I, you know, sort of found it in me. I said, you know, I shouted, leave me alone. And then he did. But it was like I was kind of giving into my socialization by just not immediately listening to my gut that said, this is a dangerous situation. I either need to ignore him or yell at him or something. So that is maybe an, an instance where I should have done it sooner, but I, I did it, you know, eventually. In a moment, we'll look at a letter and find out how our vital spark might be useful. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to participate in the program, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. You can find out how to sign up for my newsletter, find details of my new course, my best relationship tools, and there's participate in the program and you can send a letter that way. My husband has had an affair with a colleague at work. He says it is over. It was a mistake. End of story. They're still working together and he says there is nothing he can do to change it. I'm struggling to trust him, but he gets angry about my inability to get over what has happened. It is especially hard because he will not properly discuss the affair. He says, why rake over the dead embers? And it's not the cause of our problems. He blames intimacy issues. We have two children under five. As you can imagine, I seldom have enough energy to spare for sex. Throw in arguments like any couple, although ours can get particularly toxic. I would end up crying and he would get exasperated and storm out. I can't pretend like him that the affair did not happen. He says he will go to counselling, but he thinks it'll only make matters worse. What can I do? I don't want a divorce, but I feel I'm being told to put up and shut up. Well, I'm, you know, I'm curious on your take on it. I hope I, hope I get to hear that too. You've, you've done a lot of work with couples. But, you know, I mean, my first place that I go, I suppose, with a story like this is I want to try to have compassion for both. And I think that in this extremely hurtful situation, it helps to try to imagine what might be going on for him too. Generally, I find that in relationships, both partners want to feel loved and cared for. They want to feel cherished by their partner. And of course, you know, anything that interrupts that can be tremendously hurtful. Having an affair is such a deep, deep betrayal. And of course, there really must be some kind of work around this. Otherwise, I don't see how the problems will get solved on either side. I don't see how the writer of this letter will be able to go forward, but also for there to be a real repair made. There needs to be some something from him too. He needs to understand why it happened and saying that it's just intimacy issues is a, a superficial you know, take on it at best. I'm, I'm sure that's in there, but my guess is that's not the only thing. So what we hope for when there's been an affair is the possibility for a genuine, deep repair. And that takes time. And it does take an openness to letting 
both partners air their hurts and their frustrations. And uh, it can't just be sealed off. I think it's positive that he will go to counseling. And I guess what I would say is that I think a really skilled couples counselor could work with this, but I, I wouldn't pick just anybody. I'd, I'd pick someone who really knew what they were doing. I think that's so, generally a good tip for any kind yes, of therapist. Yes, true. The thing that I was struck by, and I'd like to hear more, is he seems to have authority in spades. You know, he's actually yeah. setting the agenda for what can be talked about and what can't be talked about. So he's sort of like king of the castle. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering what's happened to her, let's say, queenly energy. Yeah, I noticed that too. You know, it's like he has totally set the terms of the debate. You know, either she puts up and shuts up or because she says, I don't want a divorce, but this is the other option. So, and I agree. I'm curious about that. I mean, is, you know, what would happen if she said, I may have to leave this marriage unless we can talk about this? Usually it's the wronged partner in an affair who, who has more leverage. And so I, I wonder, uh, she doesn't want a divorce. Where is he in that? Does she know even? Um, I mean, it seems like he wants to stay in it, but can she lean into that and say, listen, we we need to work on this? And what would happen if she did? So that's a great point. So how can a woman find her authority? Any suggestions? Yeah, I think it's a process. I think it does require listening to these feelings that sometimes feel really transgressive. Like I could make up a story about this woman that she hasn't been able to do it because she's maybe in a case like this, it might be easier to feel hurt than angry when actually you would feel lots of both. And I I don't hear a lot of anger in this letter, which is interesting. Mm. I, I hear some, but I hear a little bit of defensiveness, you know, about, well, I haven't had the energy for sex. And I hear something kind of plaintive, but where is that anger? You know, not that you want to blast the guy, but that if you allow yourself to have the embodied experience of that anger, it might help you stand in a place of saying, I want to fight for this marriage. And that means we have to have it out. And I love that because what you're saying is, I want this marriage, but... And you're making both sides of it clear. So I really like that. And I think it would be really interesting for you to think about anger in general. You know, who was allowed to be angry when you were growing up? Because it sounds like you weren't allowed to be angry. Who was allowed to be angry in the family? You know, what were the, what were the stories that your family might tell about anger? Because it feels like that might be the way into finding your authority. So what do I have to say? I think you both need to listen to each other, but I really feel that you need to be listened to first because I think you're the person in the most pain at this particular point. So I think you need to claim the right to be heard because I don't think you have been heard. And nothing can change until you have been heard, because being heard, you will find out what it is that has really upset you, because there is something in particular that is painful, and you really sort of need to get hold of that. Because I think what happens in infidelity, there are so many things that are painful that you can rather lose sight of the thing that really needs to change for this relationship to go forward. I mean, it could be 
and this is just the gut feeling here, is that we need to have a more equal relationship. That mm -hmm. It could be that you have all the authority at home and he has all the authority outside the house. It could be he has all the authority everywhere. But something tells me who's in charge is a really interesting line to go down because at the moment it feels that you have no power. Mm -hmm. And if this relationship is going to go forward, you need to have 50% of the power. Absolutely. And there's something a little avoidant about her attitude, and I suspect that that's true of him too, because instead of bringing his frustrations to the marriage in a constructive way, he went and had an affair. And now he's saying he's sealing it off. There's nothing there. There's nothing to talk about. So somehow there's, there isn't room here for, for really having it out with each other for some reason. They sort of both need to go into that locked room in Bluebeard's castle or the, the magician's yeah. castle and actually look this sort of pain, this room with all the chopped up bodies is where the learning and the transformation is. And mm -hmm. unless you actually go into this room, you're going to be stuck in this half world. So either way, you yeah. need to go into the room. Even if at the end of it, after you've been in the room, the two of you decide this is not for us. Yeah. But I think that if you just leave without actually opening the door, you're going to be frozen. And whether you're frozen together or frozen apart, it's not really very pleasant. We need to go into the, un un into the room that is forbidden. And if they don't, I think the point you're making, Andrew, and it's such a good point, like the marriage will die if this isn't worked out, either a slow death or a sudden death. So we're almost coming to the end of the programme, but I was wondering what do you think men who read this book can learn, either about their partners or about themselves? Well, like I said, I think many of the themes in the book probably relate both to men and to women, and I've taken the time to explore how they might look in the lives of women. But I certainly have men that I've worked with who have trouble asserting their own needs. That is not something that only is true for women. You know, it could be useful for men to explore aspects of themselves. You know, also, I think it, it might help them understand their wife and her vulnerabilities and what's difficult for her. Because I think that is working as couples with couples, actually really understanding the worldview and what it's like to be a man, if mm -hmm. you're a woman and if yes. you're a woman, what it's like to be a man is incredibly difficult. And the power of these stories, because they're talking about these different parts inside ourselves, as well as these types of people in the world, it gives us a real insight, not just into ourselves, but into our partners too. Mm -hmm. So, as you've been a witness on The Meaningful Life today, normally I ask what makes your life meaningful. But as I've had you here before and I've asked you that question, I change it round slightly differently. So I ask, what have you done recently that has been meaningful? Well, I've been working on a, another book, working on a third oh. book. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be published later this year. And it's a book about dream interpretation. So it's called Dreamwise. And I've been in that state with it, and I, I imagine you know this, where it's coming together and I can feel it coagulating and I can find little things that I want to add and to enrich it. And my vision of it is becoming clearer 
you know, it's so satisfying to write, but to be writing about dreams, it, it is it is very meaningful. It is very meaningful. Dreams are so important. And to be able to spend all this time thinking about dreams and hopefully helping other people learn to work with their own dreams has felt just tremendous. And in fact, if you are interested in dreams, Elise has got several dreams in this book from her clients, and you get mm-hmm. a real sense of how to understand some of the symbols better, and that's really helpful. So we, we've um, almost run out of time, but just to let you know that in the bonus material, we're going to be discussing loving yourself, which is one of the ideas in the book. And if you'd like to know all about that and hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.